Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 5. I thank those men that have gone before me. We opened the service a few minutes ago with 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, where the gospel is summarized in six descriptive statements and presented as a mystery that is undebatably great and glorious, that God was manifest in the flesh, that he was justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. It's a mystery because the world cannot discover it, and we know it. It's been revealed to us. This Lord Jesus Christ, God that was made manifest in the flesh, that was justified in the Spirit, that was seen of angels, that was preached, that was believed, that ascended into glory, speaks in John chapter 5, and we want to take his words and learn from them. If you look at John chapter 5 and just look at it in its large perspective of turning to the page that contains most of it, you will find that it's in the red writing that we're going to consider today. The words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, defending himself, exalting himself, and answering his enemies, whether the trial be in the street or in a courtroom, it's a drama that you should appreciate if you love him and you love great courtroom skills because the mouth of this man was most learned and blessed to answer his enemies. It's a privilege and a pleasure to speak to you, but always a burden of knowing how to communicate the treasures that we have in God's Word about his Son. The verses of 17 through 47... 31 verses hardly have a precedent or peer in the Bible. Of course I like to be dramatic. I'm dealing with the drama of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth and defending himself and ascending into heaven. But if you understand this chapter, you will appreciate it far more than the troubling of a little water in the fourth verse that you had in a Bible story book and were taught by flannel graph in Sunday school. That is nothing in this chapter. It is less than nothing in this chapter compared to his words in the red writing. This gospel's purpose, the gospel of John, should always be remembered because it will help us appreciate what this fifth chapter should teach us. The last two verses of John chapter 20. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. Jesus of Nazareth. Legal father Joseph, biological mother Mary, is the Christ, the Messiah of God, the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, the seed of Abraham, Genesis 15.17 and 22, the Shiloh of Judah, Genesis 49, the prophet likened to Moses, Deuteronomy 18 
and so forth and so on, all the way to Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, the Son of Righteousness. The Old Testament, in its 929 chapters, declares Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, the hope of the patriarchs, our Lord and Savior, the head of our church, the cornerstone of its foundation, the life of it, the hope and joy of it. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah of God. He is the Son of God, born of a virgin, brought forth by the power of the highest and the Holy Ghost, and He is the Son of God. This person is the founder of our religion. This person is the judge of the quick and the dead at His appearing. You will stand before this person and give an account of your life. This person is the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. This person deserves all the honor that you can give him. For every bit of honor that you take from him, you take from God his Father. Every bit of honor you give him, you give to God his Father as he declared in the 23rd verse of this chapter. O Lord, help us now to give honor to your Son and to see him in his resplendent glory answer his enemies in the cheap redneck garb of the Galileans opposing the seminary-trained theologians, chief priests, scribes, and Pharisees of the Jews' religion. They're all mobbed and massed together. And they're facing a lone man. The combined intelligence and spiritual understanding of the twelve apostles wouldn't have matched the nail on his little toe. He had to defend himself, and he did it gloriously. And I want you to rejoice in him. Humble yourself to him. And as this statement of purpose for the book tells us, believe on him, Jesus of Nazareth, detailed in the Bible, generally known in human history, detailed in the Bible, is the Son of God, the Messiah promised in the Garden of Eden to the devil himself and our first parents. Let us humble ourselves, tear away our sins, rip away and crucify our lusts, and live for him as we go out of this place later today. John, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 9 tell us about the healing of an impotent man, lame, for 38 years. It tells us in the last clause of the ninth verse, and on the same day was the Sabbath. This great event of John 5, out of the multitude that lay under the five porches of the pool of Bethesda, occurred on the Sabbath day, and the Lord Jesus Christ knew that it was the Sabbath day. Verses 10 through 16 tell us of that man healed later in the day, meeting Jesus in the temple, discovering that it was Jesus, reporting that information to the Jewish leadership and how they persecuted Jesus once they knew because he had healed on their precious Sabbath day. Verses 17 through 30, we covered last Lord's Day. Jesus opened his defense by saying in verse 17, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. God is my Father. They understood exactly what he was referring to. You can tell by the next verse. 
the 18th verse, that he was referring to God. He wasn't referring to the father of their nation in some general or vague sense. He was referring to his personal father, God, because he was the son of God. My father worketh hitherto. My father has continued to work and has no regard for the Sabbath whatsoever. He performs all of his works of providence, supply, preservation, and protection every day of the year, including the Sabbath day. He does not rest, nor is he ever worried. My father treats the Sabbath that way, and so do I. He does works of good on the Sabbath day, and I do works of good on the Sabbath day, like healing this man, and you ought to be rejoicing in his healing rather than complaining about the day of the calendar. But they were rebel enemies of God because they had no love of God in them, as he is going to tell us today. In these verses, 17 through 30, Jesus opened with a remark that he knew would aggravate them further, so that in verse 18 it says, they wanted now to kill him for two reasons. That he had healed on the Sabbath day, and that he had said God was his father, making himself equal with God. Whatever they intended by that, we could not care less. We care no more for what the Jews meant by that, making himself equal to God, than we do Nebuchadnezzar saying that the form of the fourth in the fiery furnace was the Son of God. We don't care. Jesus made no further clause, phrase, or sentence about being of equal essence with the Father. Everything he says from this point farther, further, is his agreement and unity with the Father in purpose, in power, in lordship of the Sabbath day, in works that they do, in unity of will, is all that is stated as we go forward. Jesus Christ is a man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth is a man and is not of equal essence with the Father as the Son, He is equal essence with the Father as the Word of God. And I have no more time for that. I don't care that today there are three Masses being said by Roman Catholic priests who are otherwise limited to one Mass, the other 364 days of the year, and the first of those Masses is for the eternal sonship, the eternal birth, the mysterious generation of the Son in eternity. We deny, defy, reject, and abominate the whole thing. Let's get to something important. Jesus said in verse 19, everything I do, I saw my father do, and whatever he does, I do, because we're unified in purpose and plan. Verse 20, the father loveth me. That, remember, we should never forget. God loves his son. Therefore, any neglect that you show toward Jesus Christ You are offending God, his father, for not loving his son like you should. The father loveth the son. It's going to show him things, all things that he does. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. You're going to see more than just the healing of an impotent man after 38 years. You're going to see the raising of the dead and so forth as Jesus goes on. Verse 21 and 22. Remember these two verses. 21 and 22 should be paired up with 26 and 27. Two times repeated to us, Jesus declares to the Jews, God has given me the authority and power of life and death 
and eternal life and eternal death. He says it in 21. He says it in 26. God the Father has also given to me the authority of judgment. I will judge the universe. I will judge all men. I will be in charge of the judgment of damnation. Verse 29. I will be in charge of the judgment of life. Incredible statements. And I love the fact that they're doubled to us. And they're paired up so nicely for us. In 21 and 22, and then in 26 and 27. Why did God give so much authority to His Son, who was a mere man in His flesh? That all men might honor the Son. Verse 23. I'm going over this briefly for you to appreciate what we have here. That all men should honor the Son is the result of what was said in verses 20, 21, and 22. He then explains in verse 24 that eternal life is only had, is only possessed, is only experienced, uh, the only assurance of it is by hearing and believing on the Son of God as being sent from the Father. That you have got to come to terms with me. Oh, I w- God has chosen by the foolishness of preaching Not preaching foolishness, but by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. I wish that we had a cinema department that could produce a dramatic video experience for you. But if you have the Holy Spirit in you and you have prepared today, hear the words that I'm saying to you. He told them, you will come to my terms and believe on me and the one that sent me, or you are condemned in the great day of judgment. That's what verse 24 is. We use it as a proof text. We carry it around in a three-by-five card, but I want you to see it in its context. Then he explains what else is coming. God's given him authority of life and judgment, which is in verse 24. They've passed from death unto life, and they shall not come into condemnation. That's verses 21 and 22 being expressed in the doctrine of salvation. Then we come to verse 25. It's my voice that gives life. God said, let there be light, and there was light. I say, live, and men live. Verse 25. We love it for regeneration. It is not the voice of preachers about the Son of God. It is the voice of the Son of God Himself that brings us to life. We know that by comparing the resurrection of verse 25 of our dead human natures to the resurrection of our dead human bodies in verses 28 and 29. There is a parallelism here of two resurrections, and they are called the first and the second resurrection in other places in the Bible. But verses 26 and 27 repeat the incredible truth. Jesus Christ was given authority and power from God for life Death, eternal life, eternal death. Giving life, withholding life. Giving eternal life, withholding eternal life. In His hands. As the Father has indiscriminate choice, He is able sovereignly and independently of all creatures to determine who lives and who doesn't. I have that authority. As the Father has judgment to make any judgment that He chooses, None can stay his hand. None can say unto him, What doest thou? I have that authority of judgment. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
he is not that little baby in a manger. He was once in a manger. He sits at God's right hand. He is not a hermaphrodite, hippie, John Lennon, Charles Manson lookalike hanging on a crucifix around someone's neck or on the wall of a hospital room. He's the Lord Jesus Christ sitting upon a white horse with a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. And this is what he says with that sword. Because this sword cuts two ways. This sword is cutting off the enemies in front of him as being condemned for rejecting him. And it comforts us that we have such a one on our side standing at the right hand of God. He will never lose a single one of us because he has all authority to give eternal life and to judge and to deliver us out of condemnation. Verse 24. Verses 28 and 29 tell us that a time is coming in the which the Lord Jesus Christ will raise every single dead body for the last 6,000 years, reconstitute it, rejoin its spirit with it, and the wicked will be sent body and spirit into hell for eternal torment, which place was prepared for the devil and his angels. The righteous, those that have done good, not those that have accepted Jesus, those that have done good, the evidence of eternal life, shall enter into the resurrection of life, life forevermore, glorified bodies in heaven forever, experiencing the pleasures of God at his right hand, so different from those in the resurrection of damnation, the chasm, the difference between the two, none can pass from one group to the other. It's incredible. It's glorious. It's coming. It's soon. It's absolutely true. Because the greatest witness that there is on earth says so. And what is the greatest witness that there is on earth? The written record of God. Right is greater than anything else that could ever be done. Peter experienced one of the greatest verbal revelations that God ever gave on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he's the one that said, the scriptures in your hand are more sure than that. And we we can explain that ten different ways because it's rather easy. You come down from some mountain and tell me that you heard a voice. I'm going to ask what you ate before you went up the mountain. I am going to ask how much you drank while you were on the mountain. And I'm going to go through a whole list of questions because you can't prove anything by some voice you heard. But you open the pages of this. What I have right now in front of me and what you have in front of you, this is what Jesus said. He tells them in verse 30, I can of mine own self do nothing. My judgment is not independent of the Father as I hear, and that is as I hear internally and as I, as I hear the instructions of my Father in heaven, I judge. And my judgment is just because I'm not doing this independently. This is not my will. This is the will of the Father which hath sent me. And there are men on their way to damnation if they do not believe on me. Courtroom drama. Don't visualize some long-haired hippie standing there. But he was in the Galilean garb. He wasn't dressed in the robes with the expanded borders and the phylacteries on his forehead of the word of God. They despised him because he wasn't comely. And look what he's told them so far. Well, what's he going to tell them next? He's going to tell them 
I understand these legal proceedings. What I've just declared of myself is invalid in court. What I have just said of myself in verses 17 through 30 is invalid in court. I cannot testify of myself because all men are liars. We need two or three witnesses, don't we, brethren? Let me bring forth my three witnesses. Lord, you have to make up for my inability by the power of your spirit. Delight in these verses. Verses 31 through 38, he's going to bring forth his three witnesses. Verses 39 through 47, he will explain why it doesn't matter that he brings forth his witnesses. Because of their internal problems and because of their professional problems. Their personal problems. We'll get to that and we're going to finish this chapter today. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes. Amen. You better drop to your knees before him in your heart and head. Attention, affection, and own him as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Go ahead and call him Lord right now. Why don't you get it over with? You're going to one way or the other. Philippians chapter 2, 9 through 11. Okay. Verse 31. If I bear witness of myself... My witness is not true. He just bore witness of himself. 17 through 30. Are you with me? This is not hard, and we're not going to be long. He's speaking legally. I can't bear witness of myself, although I just did. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. Is the witness of Jesus Christ true? Is what he just said absolutely, perfectly true in every single detail? Yes. Is he called in the Bible the faithful and true witness? Yes, this is simply a legal description of the court that he was standing in that they would not recognize him defending himself. He needed to bring others that would be a witness for him. That's all that it means in that sentence that sounds obscure until we rightly divide it in its context. And I thank God for showing us the truth when we read it, reread it, and reread it again instead of using it as a source of proof texting. Are you all with me on that? The context is absolutely glorious. All he, listen, I can, do I need to turn you to places that when Jesus testified of himself, his testimony was absolutely true? Do you need those? They're in the Gospel of John. But for this case, he isn't referring to the inherent truthfulness or the actual truthfulness of his words. He's referring to the legal necessity of a true trial for a man's life. There needs to be two or three witnesses outside that person. Who cares if the murderer says, I didn't do it. That's what my children always told me. Look at me, children. Daddy, I didn't do it. That's why we never believe them. We look for further evidence than their testimony. And so it is with Jesus here in verse 31. If I bear witness of myself on trial, it doesn't really hold any val- It's not legally valid. It's not acceptable for your purposes. And so let's move on. I'll move on for you. You don't need to prod me. You don't need to tell me. I know your system better than you do. I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Right. 
Because it says in the word of God, in the mouth of two or three witnesses for a capital crime, we need to have every word established. That's true in both Testaments. It's true in Deuteronomy. It's true in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17 that describe the judgment of the local church. Let him bring with him one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Jesus accommodated their idea of truth and integrity by denying his own word to bring forth what they would be looking for. In other places, Jesus plainly says that his witness is perfectly true. God and men generally hold an axiom that man is a liar, so we need witnesses to determine whether he's guilty or innocent. My witness is not true just in the sense of these legal proceedings. Are you with? Okay. Do you see that? Otherwise, what in the world is he saying? If I bear witness of myself, which he just did, my witness is not true. Do you mean that he just spent the verses from 17 through 30 witnessing of himself, and now he tells us, I just lied to you for 14 verses? Of course not. I want you to see the power of understanding Scripture. So they read in the book in the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading and they rejoiced in God their Savior, is how we should respond. We don't need to have a fatted calf feast today. We'd be hard-pressed to go find a place to have one. But we can rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 32. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Now be careful here. You have alternatives. There is another that beareth witness of me. This is witness number one that Jesus is going to bring forth. Now Jesus, being a wise counselor that he is, argues from the lesser to the greater. His three witnesses are going to rise in authority and power from the least to the greatest. Okay? How do we know that? Because that only makes sense. You don't start off with your strongest argument, and by the time... You get to your weakest argument, they've already forgot your strongest argument. You keep building your case. It's called building your case, and we know it from verse 36 because it says, but I have greater witness. Witness number two is greater than witness number one, and witness number three is far greater than witness number two. And witness number three is as high as it gets. Oh, Lord, thank you so much. What a Savior. What's the purpose of this book? That you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. What is he doing here? Defending his identity, his authority, and his power to his enemies. He's declared it, my Father. You know what that said? I'm the Son of God. I am the Messiah. In one short verse, verse 17. Then he explained all the ramifications of that in in the verses 19 through 30. Now he says, for legal purposes, I need to bring forth witnesses. I understand that because mine can't be accepted. Here we go. Witness number one. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. It is legally accepted. We don't need to change the use of the word true. It's true in court. You're going to accept the witness that I'm about to bring forth. This is not God. This is, a, this is far less. This is introducing John the Baptist when he says, there is another that beareth witness of me outside of myself, not me this time, 
another party has borne witness of me and is bearing witness of me. Jesus introduced the first of three witnesses to provide fabulous evidence. Since Jesus could not bear witness of himself, he introduced another man like himself that could bear witness of him. He did not introduce another witness as if there was one already because there wasn't one already. This is the first one. By context of 531, receive this verse in its simplest, plainest sense. And here it is. Another man distinct from myself. There is another man distinct from myself that will bear witness of me and does bear witness of me. I have another. I understand that my testimony is legally invalid. I have another. I am not alone in my claims. Another has testified and is testifying of me. The Baptist. John the Baptist. It's just that he's... The context of 32 helps us understand what he didn't mean in 31 and what he did mean in 31. Right. He hasn't identified this witness yet. He just said, I have another one. I'm not going to rely on myself. I have three witnesses. I have a full case to present to this court. And the first one is John. It's not God. God's gonna, God bore witness of Jesus Christ by sending John the Baptist. There was a man sent from God. But this is, I have another witness other than myself. There is another man that's come or that has been testifying in Israel on my behalf. God sent John the Baptist for this precise reason to witness of Jesus Christ. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a amazing. John chapter 1 and verse 7. That's why we start at the front end of a book and read to the back end of a book so we can learn things on the way there. He was not that light, but was sent to... Oh, yes. Bear witness of that light that was the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. By extensive testifying in John chapters 1 and 3, John is a principal witness that we're going to get to in just a moment. There's no need to assume God here, for God is found later in the progression. God sent John the Baptist, and we're building from the less to the greater, not from the greatest to the least. And I know the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Everything John said about me is true and acceptable to this court, and you all perceive it that way. John was accepted by the Jews. They just didn't accept the one he said that was their Messiah. I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. It's legally acceptable here. There is no reason to assume any more than that at this point. Jesus accepted John. They accepted John. Verse 33. Ye sent unto John, ye sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. You know the reputation that John has in this nation. You yourselves went to John and asked him his opinion of who he was and what he was doing. I think that sounds like an acceptable witness in this court. Oh, this is the Lord at work. Do you know when he's going on trial next? For your life. We're going to be on trial for our lives. And he's on our side. Right. And do you know who he's going to be arguing with? The perfect juror. Forgive me the use of the term. The perfect judge. His father. Do you think he'll make any headway with his father? Absolute certainty that he will win the case. Right. That he shed his blood, died for us, and our names are in his book of life. 
and we should be ushered into heaven, and the gavel will come down. Yes, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. That's what's coming. So you should, you should appreciate this chapter from all kinds of angles, but that's one angle that should get you excited. Verse 33, ye sent unto John. You guys know that John is a valid testimony because you yourselves sent to him, and that was described to us in chapter 1. Remember verses 19 through 34? They came and asked him, Art thou Elias? Art thou another prophet? Art thou that prophet? They had a lot of questions for John the Baptist. They sent to him. They considered his answers to be worthy of acceptance. When Jesus once was being questioned by them, he asked them, John, was he from God or of men? Remember? They couldn't dare answer him because they knew that he was so well accepted by his holy life, the repentance that he demanded, and the prophecy that he fulfilled. The, the turning point with John the Baptist's ministry was when he said, that is the Lamb of God. They, no way. You know what they wanted? They wanted the man on the white horse then rather than the one hanging on the cross. We accept the one hanging on the cross, and we get the one riding on the white horse. Right. Are you, do you all understand? Accept the lowly man from Galilee, Nazareth of Galilee, and the one that hung on a cross. He's coming for us soon. He will split the atmosphere open on his white horse. They wanted the one on the white horse to deliver them from Rome. We want the one on the white horse that will deliver us from the books of works of our sins and folly and from, the, from hell and the lake of fire and the devil and his angels and sin and death. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. You know that what he said was true. It's well received in Israel. Your inquiry means that he's an acceptable witness. John was a simple man with great holiness that was highly regarded by Israel. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah, one of their greatest prophets. Verse 34. Oh, the look at the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to bounce, bounce back and forth from time to time, and you've just got to pay attention and enjoy what he's, what he's saying. He's on trial against his enemies. He has just said, my father and I do everything together. My father teaches me. My father shows me. My father's will is my will. He has said all that at a very high level with Almighty God. And now he's appealing to John the Baptist. So he quickly throws in there the caveat of verse 34. But I receive not testimony from man. I am not dependent upon John the Baptist. But you did send to him. You did send to him and he did bear witness of the truth. And he said I was the son of God. But these things say, I say that ye might be saved. I'm bringing up John the Baptist and his ministry because John the Baptist came to save this generation from what was coming. If you remember the ministry of John the Baptist, Matthew 3, 7 through 12, as soon as the Pharisees showed up at his baptism, he said, wait a minute, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And it's not the wrath of the second coming, it's the wrath of the first coming. Because he said the axe is now laid to the root of this Jewish Israelite tree and the wheat's going to be gathered into the garner and the chaff's going to be burned up with unquenchable fire. There's one coming after me who's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and then he's going to baptize you with fire. There was a salvation for that generation from the greatest judgment God ever poured out on the planet. Plus, God sent John the Baptist 
with the baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins so that they could be saved in 70 AD from the Roman legions that were coming. And so Jesus says here in this 34th verse, there's two odd things. He has just raised John as his first witness, and he says John is a legally valid witness, and John is a good witness, and John bore witness of the truth, but I don't need the witness of even John the Baptist. But I receive not testimony from man. Now, wait a minute. I'm a little too wound up to stand still. I'm going to need manacles soon. Does Jesus receive testimony from man? Absolutely. Hold it. Absolutely. Did the apostles go and testify of Jesus Christ? Yes, he receives testimony of man. But he didn't need it here because he'd already claimed an authority far, far higher than John the Baptist. And he says, I don't need this. Did the apostles add anything to Jesus Christ? Are you kidding? No, they didn't add anything. And that's what's to be understood here by these words in verse 34. But I receive not testimony from man. I just want you to know I don't really need John the Baptist. I'm using him because I need a witness outside myself. And I'll start with another man that you've accepted already for his opinion of things. And he said, I'm the son of God. Jesus did not need John. But he does receive testimony from men, but they do not add to him or truly declare in the greatest sense of who he is. John the Baptist, as great as he was and is, did not add anything to the Son of God. Though not needing John himself, the Jews needed John, and they needed John's message. And so he says in the latter part of verse 34, But these things I say, that ye might be saved. He knew they weren't going to be saved in a, in a salvation sense, because he tells them later, just in a few verses, you don't have the love of God in you, and you will not come to me that you might have life. He's referring back to the message of, message of salvation for the nation of Israel from the great destruction that was coming. I have to rely on you right now to use your memories. And remember the last chapter of the Old Testament is Malachi chapter 4. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, I will send Elijah the prophet. And who is Elijah the prophet? It's John the Baptist. And what is the great and dreadful day of the Lord but the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD in that context? And so he says, but, but I've brought up John because what have you done with John? John told you to repent. John told you to get right with your fathers. John told you to get right with your sons because judgment is coming and God's going to smite the earth with a curse. Isn't that what Malachi 4 says? Yes. And they're all going to be ashes under your feet in that day? The righteous are going to walk on them. And 1.1 million were killed and burned up in the city of Jerusalem. We're not preterists. Preterists see everything in the Bible fulfilled in 70 AD. We're historicists. And we know that Malachi 4, 1 through 6 was already fulfilled 2,000 years ago. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Embrace 70 AD where it fits and reject 70 AD where it doesn't fit. Right. Verse 33, you sent unto John and he bare witness unto the truth. He told you, I am not the Christ. He told you, he is the Christ. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. I brought him up because you should listen to what he said. Watch the condemnation. He was a burning and a shining light. He came to bear witness of the light. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. He did bring light, 
but he wasn't the light of Jesus Christ. He was a burning and a shining light. That man opened his mouth and declared the sins of everyone in the nation of Israel all the way up to the throne that Herod sat on. Remember? John the Baptist preached boldly, unafraid. He was a burning and a shining light. What a light he was. Jesus said he was the greatest man born of women. And ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. They flocked out to see John the Baptist. There are some expressions in our gospel accounts that tell us all of Judea went out to him. All of Judea. All of Jerusalem. Everyone went out to, Jude, to the Jordan River to be baptized of John the Baptist. That's how well he was received. Ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But when he pointed out the Lord Jesus Christ, they did not want anything to do with the lowly Nazarene from Galilee. Willing for a season. Are you willing for a season or are you willing for the rest of your life? Jesus taught that in the parable of the sower, when the seed of the word of God lands on stony ground, thin soil, it springs up with, it springs up with joy. This says, ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. It springs up with joy. Then the sun comes out, and because it doesn't have a deep root system, it withers away. Then there's seed of the word of God that lands in thorny ground. Thorny ground, It springs up with joy. Then the thorns grow up and choke it out because it cares more about the things of this world than it does the things of the kingdom of heaven, and it bears no fruit. It's a warning to all of us as well. I'm trying to draw a few practical applications for us out of these verses, but I want you to notice that the Israelites loved to hear John in the beginning. They knew that he, and Elijah had come back. They, they, they saw him looking so much like Elijah, they thought he was Elijah. Remember John chapter 1? They didn't even think he was a metaphorical Elijah. They thought he was Elijah reincarnate. And they thought that God was now visiting his people. Do you know how many prophecies and, and prophets that you have between Malachi and Matthew? Do you know how much revelation they had for 400 years? And so when John the Baptist burst on the scene, he was a burning and a shining light. They were excited. This wild man that looked just like John the Baptist. He had this little loincloth, and he he crunched on grasshoppers and ate wild honey and was a wild man, a Nazarite from his mother's womb, never drank, never ate bread. Very extraordinary. And you went out to him, and for a season, then his ministry declined. Did we learn this already in John 3? His ministry declined. The ministry of Jesus Christ overshadowed it and completely dominated it. And they did not want anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. And so that is what verse 35 is referring to. You sent to him. You trusted him. You accepted his answers. He told you that he was one just sent as the prophesied messenger before the Messiah would come. And you rejoiced in his light for a while. For a season, you accepted his teachings. And if you, will, and if you don't accept them, you will not be saved from the judgment that he pronounced on this nation. So Jesus is bringing a lot to bear in his first witness. But what a witness it was. I love verse 32. There is another. You know, I've just borne witness of myself, but I know it's not legally acceptable. This is not said here. But all my people 
will read the record of this court proceeding for the next 2,000 years, and they will rejoice in those verses. Do we like John 5, 24, 25, 28, 29? Do we like them? 23? So he's accomplishing so many things. We get comfort from these verses. His enemies did not. His enemies were being ground, poked, prodded, burned, incensed against him. He says, I have another. It's John the Baptist. And that takes us down through 35. Verse 36. But I have greater witness than that of John. This is witness number two. I have greater witness than that of John. John preached. Do you know what John did not do? No miracles. John the Baptist did no miracles. Last verse of John chapter 10. No miracles. Jesus did all the miracles. Jesus did the signs and the wonders. And they are the second witness. They're greater than a man's voice. They're the proof of a prophet to to declare things and have them come to pass. Your son liveth. Go check him out. Tabitha, arise. Beautiful. Verse 36, I have greater witness than that of John for the works, the miracles, the signs and the wonders which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do. I just did one. A man lame, 38 years, so impotent and lame that he couldn't even get into the pool time after time after time. I just healed him. They bear witness of me. This is witness number two, that the Father hath sent me. John said, there is the Lamb of God. There is the Son of God. His works said, this man must be from God. What did Nicodemus say about the miracles of Jesus in John chapter 3 and verse 2? We know that thou art a man come from God because no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. They bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Verse 36. This is the second witness. He rejected his own witness in verse 31. He brought in John the Baptist, verses 32 through 35. Now in verse 36, he brings his works in, his miracles. The works that Jesus did, his miracles, his signs and wonders, were intrinsically, by the nature of a miracle, a greater proof than John the Baptist's words. And Jesus said they were. The Jews knew that Jesus was special. We could turn to so many different verses to show Jesus' emphasis on his works. Look at chapter 7, John 7, and verse 31. And many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? There was confusion in their minds because Jesus was performing so many miracles. One year later in John 7 and verse 31, look at 10.25. 1025, Jesus answered them, I told you. They asked him, if thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. In verse 24. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you. He's telling them in John 5. He's telling them all the way along. I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Do you notice this claim to the works? Witness number two. That's 1025. Look at 1038. Verse 37, we got to get for context. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Look at the miracles I'm doing. I'm raising the dead. 
which he'll do again in chapter 11. Look at chapter 11 and verse 47. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. They knew they had a problem on their hands by the witness of his miracles. Chapter 14 and verse 10. John 14, 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? Do you not already believe those things? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sakes. Either believe my words about it, verses 17 through 30, or believe the works that I do, verse 36. Jesus is just mounting evidence up in court. He's, he's piling on. The impotent man should have been enough. The witness of John the Baptist should have been enough. Oh, we could turn to more. You know what happens as soon as we turn into the book of Acts? Peter stands up, ye men of Israel. Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good, performing all kinds of miracles, signs, and wonders, which you all have to admit. So that's witness number two. I, that's witness number two, found throughout the gospel account and found throughout the Acts of the Apostles in the books of Acts. Verse 36, But I have a greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. Jesus preached the gospel to these enemies in verses, one, in verses 17 through 30. Then, because that testimony by himself, about himself, was not legally valid, he brought in his first witness, John the Baptist. Then he brings in his second witness, all the miracles that he did and would do, and then he's going to bring in his third witness, which we'll consider after our break. Let's sing a song and then take our break. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.